Hey everyone, and welcome to Gutsy Media Podcast. My guest today is my longtime friend, Ron Ward Jr. He is the bass player for the band Graceland's Ghost. Check out their latest music video in the description below. He picked 1987's Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. But before we get into that, I want to kick off our fan contest where you can win all sorts of cool pop culture movie-related stuff. All you have to do to enter to win is to like, comment, and share three different social media posts of ours. That's Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook between January 20th and March 1st. A winner will be picked at random live on our YouTube channel March 27th. Terms and conditions apply. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. But without further ado, on with the show. Sounds good. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate you joining me here. Um, so I try to leave it up to the guests to pick whatever movie they want. You chose A Nightmare in Elm Street 3, uh, Dream Warriors. What uh, what drew you to this movie? Well, first off, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's good to chat with you again. Um, honestly, I it you know obviously um, it, I love horror movies. Um, funny that I would pick probably one of the cheesiest and worst ones that there is. Um, <laughs> But I, I need to say this first. I love my parents and I have amazing parents. I have no qualms against them whatsoever. They're my best friends. But um, so I was like five, four or five when I saw this movie. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, my my father had just met my stepmom. She's an amazing person. So she was young. She was like 18, 19 years old at the time. And uh, I saw the front cover as a five year old. You, you saw the front cover, right? It, did, it's yeah. got the, the claws are out. I thought this man was like a wizard or a magician. <laughs> I, like my eyes filled with wonder. I was like, this is going to be amazing. And I feel like I simply just asked to watch it. My dad was like, oh, hell yeah. My stepmom was like, mm, fuck it. It's, you know, the early 90s. Um, awesome. So they let me watch it. And and honestly, there's a, there's a quote from Stephen King. He was referring to The Exorcist. But he said, the first time you see something like that, you're not prepared for what you're looking at. I that was the most perfect statement ever. I I don't even think I knew people died at that point in life. <laughs> like so I'm just watching people get gutted on the screen like holy shit, I don't know what's happening. And one of two things could have happened. I either loved horror movies or I hated them for the rest of my life. It scarred me for like 5 years, but after that I I grew to love them and that movie has always held a special place. You came back around. That's awesome. Yeah. I actually have a similar story. I was about 6 or 7 years old and my mom had to work nights so my dad was like yeah, we'll pop in a movie, you know, and it was the poltergeist. Oh. It was the same same kind of idea. My dad had no idea what he was doing. We immediately, like, he literally did the movie, and I was like, all right, time for bed. It was just nightmares. It, and, and it uh, yeah, changes your life. It really does. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a horror movie fan. Like, I know a lot of people who are really into movies and really love horror movies. Um, I don't dislike them. I, I tend to catch a couple of, a year. I, I actually never saw any of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. I mean, they're a huge part of pop culture, so I obviously knew about Freddy, and I knew the storyline and the whole dream thing and everything. But is I this couldn't, your first one? This is the first one I actually oh, sat down and watched gosh. beginning to end. I'm so sorry. It was it's definitely interesting. <laughs> so the, the movie takes place in 1987. This is a year after the second movie, uh, Nightmare on Elm yep. Street, Freddy's Revenge which is five years after the first movie. So the first movie takes place in 81, then 86, then 87. This is also uh, the second movie that brings us back to the original 
director, or I, I should say writer. He's not credited as being a director, yeah. but the original white writer, uh, Wes Craven, who did not the take legendary, part, yep. the legendary, exactly. Yep. Uh, he did not take place or not take part in the second movie because he, and I quote, did not think it would be a viable franchise. And yep, then I guess um, with, with the success of the second one, he decides to, to come back in the third one. Well, funny enough. Um, so the first movie, I, 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 you have to check that one out. The first movie is that's a masterpiece for horror. That's a great, that's an actual, probably good movie. Um, the second one was panned. Like that is everyone will tell you that's the worst movie in the whole series. Um, I think what Wes was actually trying to do was he was kind of like, well, I, I didn't want this to be a franchise, but you guys fucked it up so bad. Like, <laughs> let, let me try and save some face here. So, so what made you want to do the third one then out of all of them? Why, why the third one? Like I said, that's the first one I saw. Um, I love, I love the first one so much, but I just, there was something about the third one. And it's really funny because the third one is actually what like catapulted Freddy Krueger into like, you know, icon status. Yeah, the third Even one is the highest day. grossing movie of the franchise. Um, yeah, I know the fourth one did well. At the time, the third one um, broke the record for like the highest grossing independent movie of all time, which that record's obviously been shattered now. But, you know, in the 80s, that was it was a big deal because it was a small company. Um, the third one, though, is like kids started dressing up, like parents started dressing their kids up as as. Freddy Krueger for Halloween, which to this day, and I find it so hilarious because he's a child molester. <laughs> like, you know, he was burned because he was a child molester and, and kids are, parents are dressing their kids. Like, how did this happen? So, so I got to ask, cause I'm sure it'll come up several times. Uh, he is a child molester in the first movies. The remake repaints his backstory, wrongfully convicted, come to find out a child molester. Uh, what did you think of the remake? Oh, you're treading on. <laughs> so they, tr they tried to fix it. The end of that movie, he, it ends up being like, Oh, he actually was a terrible guy. So they, they tried to like throw a curveball in there. I love what they were going for. I, I'm not, I think most people tend to hate remakes where I, I think they're just trying to keep the spirit alive, you know, try and get, mm -hmm. you know, more youth involved, which that movie sucked. I'm like, I don't want to like, <laughs> I don't sit here and like pander to, you know what it was in it. I always found it so interesting. So that you re, you watch the first movie. There's a scene where Freddy Krueger comes through the wall a little bit. They cut out a hole in that wall and they put pantyhose on it and painted it. So it's a real guy coming through that wall and it looks so cool. And then in the remake, they did like the mummy where he comes out of the sand type yeah. deal in the wall and it looked terrible. And it just goes to show you like, you know, when you're actually putting someone in that position and you're doing it for real, like how much changes they just did so much um, with the graphics. It, it just ended up looking terrible. Yeah, and I think lot, it, it takes away from it. A lot of people uh, will point to movies like Avatar and say, you know, look at what cinematography has done and CGI has done for the industry. And, and there are some phenomenal movies where yes. the graphics nowadays have stepped up to a whole new level that make them look tremendously amazing. I mean, I go back to the um, the, the newest of the three Star Wars um I forgot what the first one's called, but regardless, the, the graphics are just next level. They're just amazing. Um, but you look at movies like this where maybe the studio doesn't go full ham on, on the cost of the graphics, and they, they tend to take away. I mean, I agree with you. Some of these movies, it, you know, early to mid 80s where, where CGI wasn't a thing and they had to kind of improvise with, you know, live puppets or like you said, pantyhose and, and things like that. 
you do get more of a real sense. And I think that for for the horror movie genre specifically, I think that adds a, a lot to the to the terror and the realism. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think horror movies are probably the genre um, where practical effects are the better route to go. I, if you want to suck somebody into the movie, like Star Wars, you 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 have Jedi's fighting in space with exactly. you know Sith, like it's so much easier to fall in that. But if you're trying to tell a horror movie and and invest people's fear into this, I think practical effects go so much farther. Agreed. Um, so the other interesting thing about the third one is that they bring back the character of Nancy, who yes. is uh, a large part of the first one, obviously, and not in the second one. Um, so spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the third Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm going to jump. We'll, we'll cover the plot in a second, but I'm going to jump right to the end. Nancy dies in this one. And Wes Craven said that a big part of why he came back is because he wanted to be the one to kill off Nancy. It was his character, and he didn't think anybody else was going to do it right. Do you do you agree with her death in this movie? Absolutely, um, especially for like this kind of movie. Because at that point, you know, I think the only other main character from a horror movie I can remember dying is you know um, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, where the main actress from the end of the first one comes back and she gets killed like right off the bat. And I think it was something that they just had not tested. Uh, you know, I think that that was if you wanted to make an impact in a movie, kill off the favorite character. Yeah. Um, and, she, you know, technically she does come back at the, you know, Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's mm-hmm. obviously a different take, um, but they do. They do bring her back because she's a fan favorite. But honestly, I had no qualms with that. I, I think that that was kind of, a, you know, for a fan of the series, that was a shock. Like that was your your money grab, your main person. And they, yeah, I think they did it well. So I, I was a, a big fan growing up of like the Chucky's Child's Play and Puppet Master was was one of the big ones I was hooked yes. on when I was a kid. And when I say kid, you know, it was ridiculous to say. I mean, I have a six year old and there's I couldn't think of him watching this. It'd be insane. Same. Yeah. But but uh, anyway, I I think part of me is when you look at the newer movies and they take again Chucky for example and they make it kind of like a comedy. It's it's the bride of Chucky and the child of Chucky or whatever the hell the last one was called. Mm-hmm. It's just so over the top ridiculous. It's not even scary anymore. It, it becomes kind of like a dark comedy, and they they do this uh, unfortunately to Freddy as well in in you know Freddy versus Jason and stuff like that. So I think part of me looks at something like that and says, well, you kind of have to. I mean, you could only be scared of this guy for so long before he starts kind of becoming a comedic version of himself. But the other part of me is sad to see that happen to some of the horror icons um, like Mike Myers and stuff like that. What do you, I mean, as a horror fan, what do you think? I think, I think Friday the 13th probably um, is Friday the 13th and Halloween are the two that did it right. Like Jason is in every movie is always scary. They'll have funny moments. You know, when he picks up the sleeping bag with the girl in there and slaps it into a tree. Like, but Halloween's another one where it was just like this guy is constantly scary. He, you're, he always has that essence about him. But those are also two characters that didn't talk. Exactly. I think, yeah, I think for one thing, characters that have a voice, like you said, it's either they say nothing or they have a personality. And mm-hmm. I think within horror, for some reason, that personality comes out as kind of humorous because Chucky, even in the first one, that 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 mother hucker was hilarious. Like <laughs> he, he would have the best one liners before he killed somebody. Everybody was a bitch before they died. Um I'm not a fan of it becoming a wholehearted comedy. If you watch any of the Nightmare on Elm Street's past number three, yeah, it's one of them. He's he pretends to be the Wicked Witch of the West, and I was like, this is it has to die. <laughs> like this is it. This is over. Somebody um, kill but, him. 
three was good. I three I thought was you they rode the line between like he'd have his one liners, but at the same time you're like this is not a guy that I would really want to meet in my dreams. Yeah, for um, sure. I mean, one of the big things they changed in the third one, um, based on some of the reading I've done, is that this is the first movie where it's not one person versus Freddy. And the other movies, it's one person and everybody else thinks they're just delusional or crazy or it's just nightmares or whatever. In this one, we have a gang of people, uh, you know, the 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 dream, um, the the dream warriors, if you will, um, hence the name. It, it's, you got a group of people. One of them, Patricia Arquette. This is her mm-hmm. first movie ever, yep. which is insane because she is essentially next to Nancy. And I only, I only include Nancy because she's you know from the previous films. She's the star of the movie. I mean, she's got more screen time than anybody else. Which Good is awesome. I, Patricia Arquette. It's funny because I, I watch all these documentaries on horror movies. I actually found out that for writers, directors and actors, it is the easiest genre to start in because it's the cheapest. So like you had Kevin Bacon's first role ever was Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And then you had Johnny Depp's first role was on Man on Street 1. So all these actors that went on to have legendary careers, they start out in these cheesy, campy horror flicks. Um, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was a Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Um, the writer of Lord of the Rings wrote a script for that movie. It didn't get accepted, but, you know, to think the Lord of the Rings director trying to make a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, so the, the director of this one is, uh, Chuck Russell. This is actually his first directorial movie, which is also insane. He goes on to do uh, a couple big ones, the mask eraser with, um, uh, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger who, yeah. Okay. That's one of my favorite Arnold movies is eraser and probably next to true lies. He also does the scorpion King, which uh, essentially kind of dips his career and he's got a few after that, but nothing huge. Um, that we already mentioned Patricia Arquette and then we have uh the legendary I'm gonna butcher his name because I do that with everybody um Robert Englund Robert Englund yeah so he is obviously most notably for playing Freddy Krueger he's actually been in a ton of movies and tv shows mainly playing either Freddy Krueger or just being the quintessential horror guy in the background. Uh, this, I mean, he's made a career out of being this. And again, like you said, many horror movie tropes um, come from movies like this. I'm, I'm going back to the guy who's in um, Candyman. Candyman, yeah. He's he's kind of made a career out of being the Candyman. Yep. A, a lot of these. Do. Kane Hodder, uh, who did a bunch of the Friday the 13th. That He's been in a a bajillion movies as a, a stunt director or one of the main guys. And he's known as, as Jason. So it, it, yeah, it, it definitely sticks with them. These, these movies, they have a immense cult following. I mean, prime example. So this is the third one. The budget on this film is about $4.5 million. It does close to nine opening weekend, which I mean, to double your budget, you're considered a winning movie just at that. But it goes on in 1980. Exactly. It goes on to do forty four point eight million, which, again, you look at this against box offices today where movies are doing close to a billion dollars. It doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that's also with, you know, a, a ten million dollar budget, thirty million dollar budget. This goes. This does a ten times its budget at the box office, which is insane. It's a nice, tight ninety-six minutes. 
Um, as I've said many times on the podcast, I think hour and a half to two hours is perfect time for a movie. Anything less than that, and it's it might as well be a TV show. And anything more than that, and you got to slip me some coffee because I'm falling asleep. What do you think? <laughs> it, you know, there are there are movies that push the limits of that time, like Titanic. Well, you know, what was that like three hours or something? But it's just such a fantastic movie. But yeah, I I agree. Um, I found that I get older, and probably just because I am old these days. If it's if it's too long, I, I'd rather it was shorter. To be honest with you. Um, I, for some reason, movies I, I find hard to to sit through the whole thing. I also have a seven year old who's bouncing off the walls and and throwing all of my belongings into the middle of the room. So <laughs> I just don't have time. Yeah, you ran out of popcorn. You might as well just kiss the rest of the movie goodbye. Oh, it's gone before the credits roll on the beginning <laughs> of the movie. Like, so so the movie follows uh, Patricia Arquette's character. She is essentially committed to an insane asylum, mainly because her mother thinks she's suicidal. It's it's actually this is a, a great example of these ni- these classic '80s movies where the plot doesn't go too deep. I, I call these you know movies that you can't scratch the surface on. Um, within the first ten minutes of the movie, this uh, her character is her name's Kristen Kristen Parker um, has a run in with Freddie and basically ends up Freddie ends up cutting her wrists. Well, when her mom finds her, her mom thinks that she's tried to commit suicide and has her more or less committed. Um, to uh, an insane asylum. Um, I don't think they call it that. They call it just like a hospital or whatever, but it's yeah. a psychiatric ward of a hospital. Um, I never, I don't remember at least if they talked about why her character and Freddie have this connection. I know that Nancy goes on later to explain that these are like the last of the kids of the original group that, that killed him. Is that, is she playing to that too? Yeah, so, so that's that's essentially like they're the last of the Elm Street kids. Um, now, obviously, they're not because there's like eight movies after. But um, <laughs> yeah, they're they're supposedly like their parents were the the last in that group um, that murdered Freddie, you know, before he became who he was. And so, you know, one one of the big bad takeaways for the movie, which you kind of alluded to, which is funny, um, is that nobody ever gave a shit that, about the the characters. They never gave them time. So a lot of people were like, "Well, we don't care that they're dying." But then you're like, well, you're not supposed to like they're like, I'm here to watch Freddy. I don't care. Yeah, that's so the funny part is that her mom is in the film. Um, She obviously shows up in the beginning and and shittiest parent in the whole world, shittiest parent in the whole world. (laughs) But on top of that, they never they never go back to explaining like if she's one of the Elm Street kids. Wouldn't her mom have been involved in Freddie's death? Or was it her dad, maybe? I don't, I don't know. Either way, again, one of those you can't scratch a surface. <laughs> she shows up. You're in thinking the too much, bro. <laughs> she shows up in the hospital. She meets a, a like-minded group of, of misfits, and they all seem to be having sleep problems. Um, although, to this point, they haven't really pieced together the connection um, other than they all must suffer from some sort of same similar illness. I think the doctor just says it's it's collective uh, psychosis. You know, it just yeah. happens to be that you guys are all suffering from the same thing. And we are then introduced to Nancy. She is a new intern. Um, one of the things I do really like about this is that based on her history with Freddie, it's funny to see her then, you know, six years later, go on to trying to be a therapist specifically a sleep therapist which i thought played really well in her backstory 
Yep, I agree. Um, the, the way they brought her back was probably the best way that you could. Um, it, it, <laughs> side tangent, just because we talked about it, you mentioned about them meeting at the hospital. Um, how about Lawrence Fishburne? Oh, my God. Nowhere. She's got to be an early role for him. Uh, the only role he had before that was uh, Cowboy Kenny or whatever it was in uh, um, oh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, yeah. Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And then after this, obviously, he goes on to the Matrix. But um, I loved his character. But yeah, the, the introduction of, of Nancy, I thought, was absolutely perfect. I, she still had the gray streak in her hair, which she gets in A Nightmare on Elm Street 1. Um, funny, though, like, would you trust her as your sleep therapist? Like, is she doing a lot of sleeping? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> She she does mention she's on some sort of medication that prevents her from dreaming, um, which, I mean, I guess I can't blame her for that. I totally would be, too. She's damaged goods. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So she, uh, with help from the doctor, um, discovers that, oh, so she gets pulled. So I'm getting ahead of myself. Patricia Arquette's character has a dream involving Freddie, and she's able to pull Nancy into the dream, which is apparently a power that uh, she, she has that again, they don't go into detail about what this power is, how she got it. You know, is it hereditary? Is it, they talk um, about it a little bit. She used to pull her dad in the dreams when she was a kid. Right. And then um, he, he would, he would tell her about the dream and she kind of like, yeah. Same thing or, yeah. Um, but so Nancy now understanding that Freddie is back. And after these kids, um, essentially is going to try to help them. And, and while she is trying to help them, while she's trying to convince the doctors what's really happening, uh, and we'll come back to that in a second, you have the classic one at a time, somebody dies. This is usually a trope in a lot of horror movies. It's a trope in a lot of movies, horror or not. Um, but this is, this is that, okay, we're going to give you two or three deaths and we're going to give them to you in a really cool, weird way. Um, and that, that's usually what people like in the audience. The the first one, which is horrifying, is a kid who essentially <laughs> gets his nerves ripped out of his body and is played as a puppet by Freddy. Oh, my God. Classic gore horror movie. I love it. You got to think of uh, not even just the people who are thinking of this, but you know, the guy that was in, in charge of the makeup effects, I thought the makeup was so like they did the close up shot of his feet with oh the veins being ripped God. out. It was so good looking. And it's fun. The stop motion animation or this, you know, the stop uh, clay animation that they did for mm -hmm. Freddie when he like is the puppet for a second actually looks pretty good. So they filmed that backwards. Mm -hmm. They had a it had a clay face of Freddy, and they slowly smoothed it out in like a stop motion animation. So when you see it, it looks like it's a basic clay doll forming into Freddy, when it's actually the opposite. I, I thought great shooting. The cinematography in this movie is awesome. I think horror movies don't get enough credit for the cinematography. Um, you do get a lot of makeup. You know, great makeup artists come out of horror movies because you have so much you know blood, gore, zombies, so on and so forth. But when it comes to cinematography, that was just a genius thought process, especially in 87. They did that a couple times. So the scene where Patricia Arquette gets eaten by like the Freddy worm, that was all backwards, too. She was actually crawling out of it. Then they, you know, but she's actually getting sucked in. So they actually did that a couple times in this movie. It's great. It's unbelievable. Um, so while this is happening, while you have these, you know, these kids get knocked off, 
um, the Patricia Arquette's character is going to the two doctors who are in charge of the group. And you have the classic one doctor, no, absolutely not. You're crazy. The, I know what these kids need and I'm going to forcefully give it to them. While the other one is like, I'll hear you out. Um, and it slowly gets on board and, and helps her. Um, that's, that's when things start to get a little crazy. They end up going back to Nancy's father. Now, I don't know any of the history because, again, I didn't see the first two movies. Can you go into a little bit of detail as far as how is Nancy's father kind of connected to this and why is their relationship so tattered at this point? So basically, and, and I guess it's probably a plot hole um, because if Patricia's mom was a part of Freddie being killed, which is you know kind of what they're insinuating, they basically say that Nancy's dad, John Saxon, by the way, who's a absolute legendary actor um they basically said he's the last person that would know about freddie being killed so the story goes that nancy's dad is the one that buried his body um that was in charge of getting rid of the the evidence um so yeah he's from the first one he's the he's a police officer on the first one in the town of springwood all the kids start dying he never ever believes nancy the entire time um everyone's getting murdered johnny depp's getting sucked in the beds you know like <laughs> wild shit's happening and and he's the one that kind of locks nancy in the house at the end and is like you, you're not coming outside you're fucking crazy um so obviously at the end of that movie their relationship is tattered you know he never believed nancy she never believed him all the kids died so i'm sure he got fired from his job um <laughs> but he's so a now- cop in this one I, well, he has the, the badge on. That <laughs> doesn't unless like he got fired and went right to the bar that he's been there. He just since. never left. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know, he's he's the last um person that they can go to 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 find out about Freddie's backstory. And and he does. He offers the information uh, and decides to take the good doctor uh to the body. So at this point, the good doctor and Nancy split up. Nancy has to rush back to the hospital to save the kids from the evil doctor and essentially Freddie because the evil doctor is basically saying, I say evil. I mean, the I was say, she wasn't that bad. She wasn't that bad. <laughs> the doctor that doesn't believe Nancy um, is essentially forcefully uh, separating these kids and is saying, you know, listen, we're just going to carry on with what we've been doing. And well, you glossed over one part though. Uh-oh. So I, I, I needed that. I needed to talk about this because it's, it's probably my favorite scene. Defet Comics is the publishing branch of Don'tForgetATowel.com, the only place to travel geekly. Focusing on creator-owned and independent titles like Hollowed, Pursuit of Plastic, and Fairy, and many more. Defat Comics will be a mix of genres appealing to every kind of reader. Join the new source of comic book entertainment with Defat Comics. It is so fucked up on every level when they when they make them fall asleep to see what their dream powers are. They're, they're oh. like, for one, we don't know if this is going to work, but you kids should all fall asleep in this room. And they're like, yeah, OK, like, yeah, isn't that? And then it's done us well the, so far. The dream powers, the lamest fucking shit. Like, where do you when do you have a dream when you're like, I can do eight cartwheels like this is fucking <laughs> awesome. So so let's run through them. We got Patricia Arquette's character. Her her dream power is not so she has the ability to pull people into her dreams. Mm-hmm. That's not her dream power. Her dream power is that she is in an acrobat, apparently. And she not can even like, a good one though. I don't even think she's Olympic level. Like 
My sister can do as many cartwheels as this. You know, like, this is what you dream of? We then have uh, Jennifer Rubin, who's in this movie as well. She plays Tyron? Taryn. Taryn. Her her dream power (laughs) is that she can wear a punk uniform, put her hair into a mohawk, and she carries around knives. Yeah, she's not she's not good with the knives at all, because um, she does get into a fight with Freddie, and Freddie gets the best <laughs> of her. She also there's like a subplot here where she's like a former junkie. Mm-hmm. This this subplot is there's no reason for it in the movie whatsoever. They they touch on it briefly during one of the like group um, like therapy sessions. They then have a throwaway scene where her and an orderly bump into each other in the hallway and the orderly basically says, Hey, let's sneak off and get high and bang. And she's like, leave me alone. And then the only other time they reference it is when her and Freddie fight, at which point Freddie turns his blades into syringes and then injects her in the arm. They also had this disgusting scene where the former, um, like <laughs> shoot up spots on her arm turn into these like, suckling little mouths mouths. yeah which it actually was a cool kill i i i actually like that kill but yeah there's no there's no subtext whatsoever it's like they're 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 just gonna throw that in there so they could use it as a kill later absolutely which i'm i'm for i thought it was like i'm with you i think that was one of the coolest kills in the movie anything that can make me cringe i'm not a jump scare person it's it's too easy to pop out of a closet and get me to to to, you know give a jump scare show me something that's cringeworthy the 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 tendons you know, playing it like a puppet, the the syringes in the arms, all that stuff. I like that stuff. Um, so she's a punk rocker that has knives. With knives, yeah. With knives. Then we got Kincaid. Uh, he is super strong. Is but, he? He bends a chair like <laughs> he bends this, this... And he, he breaks through drywall. I mean, drywall is pretty tough. I, the Kool-Aid man made a fucking career out of doing that. Like I just <laughs> these dream powers to me were were like God, I just that was the cringiest part. And by the way, Kincaid, um, and he said it himself in interviews, was the first African American to survive at the end of a horror movie. That's true. Yeah, because he does survive. I, mean, I don't know if he was the first, but it's definitely not a. a That's his quote. <laughs> so we have. Then That's we have, his dream power. <laughs> surviving. Uh, we then have Joey, who is. He's he's a mute. He's quiet yeah. in the movie for whatever reason. His dream power is that he can talk in the dreams or sing or yell or whatever it was. Hold on. His first dream power is the, my dream power. He's like, all right, fuck all this. I'm going to go bang that hot nurse over there. <laughs> like, I know I would have fucked up like that. Like that. I would have been like, this is so it. Like, that's, that's a great scene. So they have this moment where they all decide, like you said, OK, we're going to we're going to pass out together and see what our dream powers are and the very next scene is them waking up essentially convinced it didn't work now obviously we all know as audience members it totally worked and they're dreaming right now but they don't know that seconds after waking up and the group is having this conversation he looks out the door and this nurse is like hey come over here i want to sleep with you and he's like all right well this seems like a good time to break away from the group and, and try to get lucky oh it's great I, um, I, that's my, that's my spirit animal in that movie is, is Joey. <laughs> and then who's the last one that 
is it not, not Neil? Neil's the other doctor. There's one more kid. I want to say. Yeah, the wizard master. I can't remember his name so offhand. I read a, I read a little tidbit that he got the role. Now, mind you, this is 1987. He got the role because he's one of the only actors that tried out that actually did play D&D. So he knew the he lingo. Looks like it. <laughs> he knew the lingo. And uh, his dream power is that he is an actual wizard. Now, which, Yeah, he's the wizard master probably is one of the most useful dream powers out of the group because he can literally manifest things in front of him, which saves him from being killed by Freddie at one point. Uh, he's kind also, of. he uses it such and like, once again, like, like he's got, so he's potential. a wizard master and he's like, here's a fucking butterfly. Like, let's do this. Like, <laughs> just don't, I don't get it. So, so Nancy goes back to the hospital. She attempts to help the, the four or five remaining, um, dream wizards, dream warriors that are there, and they go into the dreams and they use their dream powers to fight Freddy there, while simultaneously uh, the good doctor is uncovering the body and attempting to bury it because he has been told by a nun who has shown up that we, we finally in the third movie get the backstory on Freddy, where Freddy came from, which is probably one of the most horrific backstories and one of the best backstories for uh, a bad guy. I mean, okay, so you got Michael Myers randomly flips out when he's six, kills his whole family, and has to come back 30 years later to kill his sister. You got Jason, who is bullied as a child and then dies at camp by the counselors and comes back for revenge. If anything, I'm on Jason's side there. Mm -hmm. And then you have Freddy. Now... We find out in this movie that Freddie's mother worked at this insane asylum, the same one that they are currently uh, residing in. She is locked in the ward over a, a long weekend for whatever reason, and during that time is repeatedly abused and raped by these inmates. She then gets pregnant. And Freddie is the offspring of a thousand mental patients, essentially. He's that's he's the, the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Yeah, that there is. There you go. That's that's the that becomes the tagline for Freddy Krueger. Which I mean, again, it's, it's it's awful. It's absolutely awful. But you want an awful backstory for your main bad guy. Yeah, I mean, it invokes no sympathy, no exactly. sympathy, which. You could almost find it even in Michael Myers, especially when you go back to like Rob Zombie's remake. You're like, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, kid had a horrible childhood. Obviously, they didn't do that in the original, but there's almost always some sympathetic, um, you know, connotation behind a lot of these these villains because, um, you know, they try to make them relatable. You don't relate to Freddy on any like if you relate to Freddy on any level, like you probably are, are just not a good person. So, yeah, I mean, so the idea here is that he is pure evil from the moment of conception not even like the moment of birth the moment of conception he's pure evil um which is insane but anyway so long story short the good doctor finds the body attempts to bury it during the process freddie is able to <laughs> kind of get control of his bones again that's a plot hole <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a big plot hole that they just grazed over. Like if grazed he could enter right the over. real world at any time, why? Why, yeah, why would um, he do that? I mean, I guess being probably, a, a stack of bones probably isn't uh, the easiest way to go around killing people. But he's the most badass skeleton I've ever seen. Was he doing like roundhouse kicks and like 
It was like a fucking ninja. I don't know. He beat the hell out of those two guys. And then he did like that victory dance at the end. I, I was like, all right, let's see I, what you guys are doing. So then the, he ends up killing Nancy's father. Yeah. I, I, he throws him right into an old car that like pierces through his chest or something. So he dies. Uh, I'm sure because uh, I know, you know, nobody comes back from the dead in movies that he probably doesn't come back in any of the remaining films. He does. Go, go yeah, well, so the thing is, so not to get into it, but Wes Craven's new nightmare, Wes Craven came back and he, he was like, you guys totally fucked Freddy Krueger up. What he does is, is he takes Freddy Krueger and puts him in the real world. Like Robert England is Robert England in that movie as an actor. Nancy Thompson is Heather Langenkamp as the actress. And they make it like, what if Freddy was real? Like, what if somehow that essence became real? So, yeah, all of them are in it, but they're the actual actors like Heather Langenkamp, oh. John Saxon. It's actually a a great movie. He wanted to end it not shitty. Um, and it, it's actually a pretty cool thing. So that's how they come back. It's not like they're revived magically. I'll have to check that out. It sounds good. Um, so the, the good doctor is able to find the bones and bury it while simultaneously they are fighting Freddie in the dreams. Um, Freddie gets one up on Nancy, stabs her. Um, eventually she sur- succumbs to her, her stabbing. Um, and it's like <laughs> yeah. a double-sided you know, killing of Freddy. They kill him in the dreams and they also kill him in the real world. Now, obviously the real world is what really does it um, because at the point where he's being buried and, and holy water is being spread on him, um, you see him kind of dissolve in the dream. And then you find out th- at the very end that the nun who was able to give the good doctor this piece of information that you have to, you have to find the body and bury him if you want to, you know, really kill Freddy. Um, you find out that that was the mother. That was yep. the nun that was locked in there, which is, again, just I another great level of storytelling um, where you had the mom that, you know, we were both parents. And to know that your child is so evil that you contribute to its ultimate demise, that's a big thing. And I really liked that layer of storytelling there. You went really hard on that. I never thought that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I... I cool. That is food for thought. Now I'm going to look at my kid a different way. Like you better not. I, yeah, I, I actually never, you know, thought of it from her perspective, but um, it, it definitely is cool, especially because in the beginning of seeing her, you definitely know, like she's probably otherworldly, you know, because mm-hmm. she vanishes and whatever, but to come to find out that that was actually the mother of Freddie, I thought was a really cool, like if you were going to make a good story based on this, I, I thought that they did a good job. Yeah, I, I think the movie, so that actually brings us to a really good point. Um, for season two of the podcast, we actually have a purpose now. We didn't have a purpose in season one. We were wandering aimlessly through the realms of, <laughs> of the of the nightmares. Uh, our purpose is, when it comes to these movies, we have to determine, is it a good movie? And the best part about that question is that it's so dependent on the, the individual person. Um, I've talked many times about movies that have really are just dripped in, in backstories and de- character depth and character development. And then you have other movies, you know, such as this and some of the other movies that we've talked about that you, you just can't scratch the surface on just watch it for what it is and don't ask any questions. Um, and, and some people, uh, a lot of critics there, I get the question a lot, you know, why are the critics opinions of movies always so different than the normal audience members? And I think it's because of how you look at the movie. You know, you can look at a movie and you can look at storytelling and cinematography and and the lighting and the actors and rip a movie apart. 
And then you could look at the movie and not look at any of that stuff and just look at the story in front of you and love it. And uh, so it brings us back to our purpose. Was this a good movie? And we have developed three questions that we ask all of our guests uh, as it pertains to the movie. And that will hopefully help us answer that question. Was it a good movie? So are you ready? Are you ready to play the three questions? What if I have questions for you? I am all about it. <laughs> Nobody ever asked me questions. I'm all that's, about it. That's what I'm curious of. So I, I do I do have one for you because we cannot we cannot gloss over the kills. What what was your favorite kill and why? Ooh, that's tough. I mean, I have to go with um so th- there is a female in the cast of the Dream Warriors. Yes, and, let's uh, do this. <laughs> she is an aspiring actress. At one point in the, we talked about Lawrence Fishburne. At one point in the movie, she is up late watching TV in kind of like their little rec room. And Lawrence Fishburne walks in. He's like, oh, you know, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if you're in here. And she's like, please, just let me watch the movie. Or let me watch TV. And he's like, fine. But, you know, nobody, don't tell anybody I saw you. And he leaves. And Freddie appears and basically picks her up as, as like the TV and slams her head into the TV, and then she's left because the TV's mounted to the wall. So she's left kind of like hanging from the TV. It it was just a really really cool kill. He's got that classic one line where I think he calls her like a bitch or something. Because so know, that line is legendary. Uh, Robert England has said that when he signs autographs, that that is the most asked for line. Really, that is the that is the number one greatest kill in all of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like when they do rankings. Um, that was a legendary kill. He says, <laughs> he says, welcome to primetime bitch and slams her head into the TV as he is the TV. And it is, if you haven't seen it, you have to just watch that kill. It, it was a good one. It was definitely a good one. I mean, the other ones were cringeworthy. In fact, I actually think most of the kills in this movie were, were pretty cool. I mean, except for the wizard master, his whole fucking thing was lame. Like. <laughs> Can't, can't give him any credit. No, not at all. Um, but that line, or the that movie in general, just had so many like good lines, and everybody says "Welcome to Primetime, Bitch" is their favorite. But to be honest, when Freddie kills Patricia Arquette's mom, oh, that's he, a good one. That is my favorite in the whole movie, and no one talks about it because I just feel like it resonates so well. Because you hear a guy in the background, so she's talking to her daughter, talking her in, but obviously it's a dream. And he, you hear in the background some guy go, hey, where's the bourbon? And the mom goes, I'll be right down. Mom and, and daughter are having this heart to heart. And then all of a sudden she gets dragged away off screen. And then Freddie comes in and he goes, I asked, where's the fucking bourbon? And he chops her head off. <laughs> I was like, this is this is prime. Like, this is perfect this is quality entertainment. <laughs> I agree 100 um, percent. OK, so question number one, as it pertains to 1987's Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors, what was the message of the film and do you agree with it? You know, what's funny is if you if you listen to um, the writers and directors, there actually is a lot of um, backstory that they put into it. Um, the second one was was actually a, an, uh, a gay slash AIDS understory, which you would never you would never know that unless you were like deep in thought. This one, 
I have no clue. Like, don't don't assume your kids are crazy and send them off to an insane asylum. Like, I just think it shows if you want to get like really deep into it, it just shows like who you should and shouldn't be as a parent. All of the parents in all of these movies are just absolutely horrible. They don't listen to their kids. Their kids are going through a lot. So if I were to take anything of it, it would be to be a better parent and actually listen to my kid. You know, even I remember even being young and and being scared of something or something would happen. Once again, not to throw my parents under the bus, but it was kind of like, you know, <laughs> fucking suck it up and go to bed, which I find myself doing at times. But then there's times where you think, like, let's stop. Listen to our kids because they have something to say, too, because to them, that's a gener- that's a that's a real feeling that they're having of being scared. Um, so honestly, like if I had to take a message, I want to be a better parent. I don't you know what I mean? Uh, amazing. Amazing. One thing we learned from Freddy Krueger, be a better parent. I love there it. There you go. I love it. And yeah, uh, I do agree with that message. So. <laughs> okay. Question number two. How did the movie leave you feeling? And do you think this was intentional? So obviously they, you know, the very end of it, they have the little, little house and the light flicks on. So, I mean, I, that feeling of like hopefulness that like, they're going to do another one because I, I love these movies to, to me, like a horror movie, like you don't have to, like you said, just take it at surface value. To me, it's fun. Uh, my kid asked me why I like horror movies. And I just said, they're fun. Like, I, do I want to go out and murder somebody <laughs> sometimes, but not like that. Um, <laughs> But they're just they're just fun. I, I can go into another world. I, it's just different. It's fun to watch. Um, so that feeling of wanting there to be another one sometimes definitely is there. Um, now, they went on to fuck the whole thing up. And I wish that they hadn't made more. But at the time, yeah, I think, you know, watching it, it was kind of like, oh, man, like Freddie's not really dead. Like, what's the next one going to be like? Yeah, I, I love that. And the best part about that is. Um, you know, I remember a lot growing up when it comes to, especially the eighties, the nineties, you'd have movies like this where they left you that little glimmer of hope and you really didn't know, was there going to be another movie? Because for a movie to go on to do a trilogy was, you know, once every so often, and it wasn't even guaranteed at the start. Nowadays, you have to leave the movie over open-ended because almost every movie goes on to make a sequel or at least a trilogy, if not six 12 movies i mean we didn't have that back then three was your limit once you hit three movies that unless was it, you were yeah. an anomaly that was it you're 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 dead on like i think the trilogy thing was like if you got to three you knew it was done but it's it's funny because i feel like people hate sequels now i think it's so overdone and oversaturated that you're like sometimes a good movie just needs to end but i remember being little and i don't know if it's a younger thought but i didn't want the movies to end you know, I remember like I'll just take for like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies in the 90s were phenomenal, even though they got progressively worse and worse. It was like, please <laughs> just do another one like you can fix this. And now it's like, God, stop fucking making movies. Yeah, it it, it gets overwhelming when every movie's got a sequel. I Again, I think I think what made the sequel great was you didn't know it was coming. It was like a reward. You found out five years later, oh my God, we're getting a sequel because you see the trailer randomly either on TV or in front of a movie. Now it's like opening weekend of the of the first movie, you hear, oh, they've greenlit you know, two, three, and four. It's like, oh, great. Well, now I know that two's not going to end with any sort of interesting things. Well, 100%. And like you just said, five years later, that it now it's like within a year, the yeah. next movie's out. And we can all thank the, the Marvel Universe for that. Um, okay, question number three. What is the most important sequence in the movie? That's that's a tough one. So it, it depends on if you resonated with the kids or if you resonated with Freddy, which I think most people resonate with Freddy. Um, 
the backstory, the, the fact that there was a backstory even in it, I, you know, the bastard son of a hundred maniacs, I think was probably like eye-opening. Like they actually gave Freddy character, whereas before he was just, you know, the antagonist. And now all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, this is why he does it. This is what's happening. Like, even if he was a bad guy, like this dude just from the start did not have a, a, a good shot at life. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. I mean, Again, not not having watched these movies at the time they came out or even, you know, in the last 20 years, I, I always knew that. I always knew that, you know, that backstory. But when you when you hear it as part of a third movie and that he didn't have that up until then, I, I can understand why that would be such a resonating part of the movie. Um, okay, so based on those three questions, I mean, I feel like I don't have to ask, but I'm going to. Was this a good movie? Like you said, that that is really subjective to like the person. If you don't like horror movies or you don't like campy movies, no. Um, in regards to like, I pick such a shitty movie. Like, if, if you ever <laughs> want to do this again, let me know. Like, I'll get a better one. But I, I, it was a good movie for what it was. I have a lot of fun watching it. It brings back a lot of memories. I think there's a lot of cool shock value to it. But you know, I, there's a million other movies I would pick over it if I wanted to like open my eyes to like world views. It wouldn't be this one, but. Yes, for what it was, if you want to watch an 80s horror movie, this is this is probably my go-to. I could not agree more. Uh, my take on this, was it a good movie? Yes. And the reason why I say that is because you can't take a movie out of its context. You can't watch a movie from, you can't watch Casablanca now and compare it to uh, Avatar or Titanic. I mean, it's just, you can't do that. But I think if you take this for what it is as a 1987 horror movie, especially one with a, a, a cult you know, following of, of Freddy Krueger, it was definitely a good movie. It adds so much context to the characters, really adds to the story. It's not just another, here's Freddy killing people. Um, I think it's a great movie. I, and I don't think you can, you can understate the fact that like the cultural impact that it had. You know, when kids to this day, I, I know somebody who just posted a picture of their six year old in a Freddy costume, like all, all of a sudden Freddy's everywhere. You know what I mean? He's doing interviews as Freddy on, you know, you know, all these talk shows. He's got he had a TV series that came after this. I saw that. You know, it's just there's T-shirts. Walmart. I bought a shirt at Walmart that had Freddy and Jason chilling on a fucking like float in a lake. So it, it's just it had a cultural impact, whether you like it or not. It. it it was successful. Absolutely. Um, so I do have another game for you. Uh, as you may or may not be aware, Rotten Tomatoes uh, tends to grade all of its movies. You have both the critic score and the audience score. So what I like to do is play a little game called Guess That Tomato. So in Guess That Tomato, I asked my uh, my guests if they will guess the audience score for the movie that we're talking about. That movie, 1987, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. What is your guess for the audience score? One to 100. Uh, that one was one of the more successful ones. I, I'm going to, I'm going to somewhere in the, probably the high 70s range, like 78, 79. I don't think it would hit 80, but it shouldn't be below 75. Okay, so we'll we'll go with like about 78? 78. 78. Um, okay, the tagline for this movie, if you think you'll get out alive, you must be dreaming. Oh, that's such a dad <laughs> joke right there. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the critic score. 
36 critics rated this movie as 72. The audience score was made up of 304,000 people. Holy cow. Damn. Yeah. I'm also going to give you three movies that are within 2% of this movie's rating. So plus or minus 2%. Here are the three movies. Zombieland Double Tap, the sequel to Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg's R-rated post-apocalyptic zombie comedy. World War Z, Mark Foster's very loose adaptation of the best-selling post-apocalyptic zombie journal starring Brad Pitt. And American Psycho, an insane movie starring Christian Bale as a serial killer? Question I love mark? that movie, by the way. Such a great movie. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, a buddy of mine who's huge into movies, uh, we watched that a couple years back together in the barracks. And I just couldn't get past the little one-liners where like the, he has a whole montage of the business cards and the certain color the business card is. And the t- it's just such a great movie. I, I have me, a question. Christian Bale at his peak. That is the, the best acting you get out of him is in that movie. I, I, I don't want to I don't want to get into it. I was that's that's like another show, but the very end, do you think all of that happened or no? I I don't think it matters. I think <sighs> I think the, I feel like you best... dodged the question. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best part about that movie is that even if it didn't happen, it still tells you how crazy this individual mm. is. I mean, obviously if it happened, he's he's a serial killer and is you know, insane. But even if it didn't happen, I think he's moments away from making it happen. Like he's such a, a deranged and, and Christian Bale plays that to a T phenomenal movie. Um, but with those, with those three movies in mind, do you want to change your guess? Damn it. Why, why are we doing this? <laughs> like American psycho has to be rated high. Like that was great. I know that world war Z. I, I think that got rated pretty low. Um, and double tap. I actually never saw that one. The first one was good, but sequels are never, never rated as high. Um, no, because if I change it, it won't be by much. I, like you said, two percent. So if I were to change it, I would make it an an eighty or seventy five. So uh, no, I'm going to keep it seventy eight. So the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes for Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors is sixty eight percent. What? Yeah, it's not that high. I'm surprised. That's crazy. All right, cut this whole section out. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny is the other movies, this is the highest of them. So the the new Nightmare is is the second highest at 66%, but the other ones are in like the 30s. No way. Yeah. What's American Psycho at? uh, uh, American Psycho is at 70, I believe. But I meant the the other Nightmare on Elm Street's. The oh, yeah, second no, no, one, that makes thirty-three. Yeah, uh, Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare, is at thirty-three. Should be at twelve. It's crazy. So Wes Craven's a new nightmare, a nightmare three, and a nightmare one. Those are the three that everyone loves. So I, I have to assume that those are the top. So with that being said, it's a firm belief of the owners that don't forget a towel that everybody geeks out on something. Uh, while it might not be comic books and movies, maybe it's you know Freddy Krueger and and slaughtering nuns and psychiatric wards. So I got to ask you, what is it you're geeking out on right now? In real life? In real life. <laughs> um, music. Um, music. So you know we talked about it before. Um, I'm I'm obsessed with. With being able to play, I have a band right now um, called Graceland's Ghost, and it, it's literally 
besides my kid, it's all consuming. I, I absolutely love being able to create music. It's it's one of the greatest gifts that I've ever had the pleasure of being given in life. Um, I would suggest hand all of your kids a guitar as soon as you can. So what what kind of music do you guys play? It's really hard uh, to describe it. So somewhere along like, you know, rock, ambient, indie type stuff like that. We've been compared to like Goo Goo Dolls or Death Cab for Cutie, stuff like oh, that. Wow, that's great. Um, we just we had a single come out a couple months ago called Prisms. Um, we have a new album coming out, hopefully the beginning of 2021. I actually have learned through doing this never to put a timeline on things because you'll disappoint everybody. <laughs> Um, this album was supposed to come out like a year ago, so we just stopped telling people. Um, but yeah, Graceland's Ghost, I, 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 that's it, man. I, my kid sits around and listens to it now. It's just, it, it's so cool. It's, it's my life is just making music at this point. Well, that's great, Ron. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking to me about the movie. I mean, g- give me, give me your, your, you know, sixty second rundown. Where can we find you? Where can we hear the single? Where can we buy the album? Well, I appreciate you giving me the time. Um, like I said, Graceland's Ghost. Um, search us up on YouTube. We also have Spotify. Our first album's on there. We released three years ago. New single's called Prisms. It's on YouTube right now. We're going to have another another single coming out soon. So hopefully we can we can get you guys all the music needs that you want. Um, I appreciate anybody who listens. I, honestly, I, I think even if you didn't enjoy it, it's just cool that somebody gave us a shot. So I appreciate Absolutely. it. Find the link in the description below, guys. Again, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Have a good one. You too. You've got Gutsy Media Podcast. Leave a message about any movies you've covered, and maybe we'll add it to the show. Thanks. Hey, this is Armando. I was just calling in to say that I think, unpopular opinion time, that the best Nightmare on Elm Street movie of the franchise undoubtedly is, got to be, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. It is by far the best. It has an all-star cast. The plot is done well. The directing is good. It's got everything that we want action, it's got the backstory for Freddy, it completes it, then they go and ruin it by doing other ones, but this one here is the most complete picture out of all of them. Unpopular opinion, everybody in my sci-fi catalog and all my chat rooms agree. I think it's the best, they think it's the best. Why doesn't other people think the same thing? Anyway, over to you, Armando out.